If you've done any searching about a PCOS diet online, you may have been disheartened to say the least by the foods that you may see are recommended that you need to avoid. I've seen it recommended that people with PCOS have to avoid gluten, dairy, eggs, soy, carbs, sugar, white foods, fruit, red meat, caffeine, and even canned tuna. What? I mean, what's left? Chicken and leafy vegetables? Pretty much. Uh, yeah, no, thank you. I'd rather keep having symptoms of PCOS if that's the case. Thank you very much. So what's the real deal? Is there any scientific rationale for any of these suggestions? We're going to talk about what's real and what's BS inside this episode. What foods should you avoid with PCOS? Let's dive in. Welcome to Hormonally Yours with the Hormone Dietitian. If you're a busy woman struggling with hormonal issues like PCOS, fertility struggles, and other hormone imbalances, and you feel like you're the boss of your life in every area but your hormones, then you're in the right place. I'm your host, Melissa Groves Azero, integrative women's health dietitian, coffee lover, cat lady, all black wearing, former New York City advertising exec turned professional period fairy. It's my mission to be the no BS hormone nutrition education resource for smart women struggling with hormone imbalances so you can have regular symptom-free periods and optimize your fertility naturally. I'm here to share real, actionable, science-based tips you can use to get real results without cutting out foods, spending hours in the gym or meal prepping, and without losing sleep, because we're all about balance here at The Hormone Dietitian, and I am so glad you're here. Let's get started. Hello, and welcome to this week's episode of Hormonally Yours with the Hormone Dietitian. Let's start with the good news. First, you don't have to avoid anything if you have PCOS. Not carbs, not gluten, not dairy, not processed foods, you know, not even sugar. To eliminate something means to avoid it entirely, and there's just no evidence that you need to do that. In fact, avoiding too many foods can actually be harmful to your diet and to your mental health. And besides that, there's just no evidence that eliminating any food is necessary or beneficial for PCOS. PCOS is a lifelong condition. We have to treat it like a marathon or even an ultra marathon and not a sprint. Short-term solutions are not going to work. And eliminating foods until there's nothing left is not sustainable. Add that to the fact that people with PCOS are at a three to four times higher risk for eating disorders, in particular, binge eating disorder. And that's even more argument against attempting to treat PCOS by cutting out foods. Did you know that one of the biggest triggers for binging is restriction or under eating? I mean, why play with fire if you don't have to? 
So I wanted to do this episode to talk about some of these common recommendations and why they may not actually help. And I will also mention a few things that I do recommend minimizing or at least being mindful of in your diet. Sound good? Let's start with gluten. Generally, people recommend cutting gluten out of your diet because it's quote unquote inflammatory. Yes, gluten may be inflammatory to some people, not to all people, but that's not a reason to recommend an entire category of people eliminate it from their diets just because they're diagnosed with a condition that, that may include inflammation. In fact, when you search the scientific literature for PCOS and gluten, there are literally zero studies that pop up. Zero. Dietary guidelines are not made on the basis of Petri dish studies suggesting interactions between molecules outside of the environment of a human body. Yes, inflammation is common in PCOS, but common still doesn't equal all. If you're one of the ones who doesn't have inflammation, it doesn't make good sense to cut out an entire group of foods because it might contribute to inflammation. Anecdotally, many people with PCOS or not report feeling better after cutting out gluten. But generally, those benefits like feeling less bloated or other digestive symptoms can be attributed to the fructans, which are the fermentable carbohydrates in wheat, not the gluten, which is a protein. Additionally, when people cut gluten out of their diets, That often means they're cutting out many of the processed carbohydrate foods that they were eating before. Many of the convenience foods we turn to happen to have gluten. So when those are off the menu entirely, we often replace them with more nutrient-dense foods, which can lead to us feeling better. For example, maybe instead of having a bagel and cream cheese for breakfast, now you're eating an egg and veggie scramble. Or instead of eating a sandwich for lunch, now you're eating a salad with protein. Or instead of having pasta for dinner, now you're swapping in spaghetti squash or zucchini noodles. So basically, you have instantly upped the nutrients you're eating by swapping in more veggies instead of all the carbs you were eating when you were eating gluten. So let's be real though, because most people don't do that when they go gluten-free. They go out and buy all the gluten-free substitutes for the foods that they were eating. And these can be vastly less nutritious and much lower in fiber. Gluten-free bread and gluten-free pastas, with the exception of bean-based pastas like those made from chickpeas and red lentils, are low in fiber and high glycemic, meaning that they spike your blood sugar higher. And of course, gluten-free cookies are still cookies. They are not a health food despite the health halo that the gluten-free label might give them. Foods that contain gluten have benefits. Studies have shown that people who follow a gluten-free diet are at higher risk for diabetes and other chronic conditions. I suspect this is less to them eating less fiber when they're swapping those gluten-filled foods for gluten-free foods. 
One food that contains gluten in particular that I consider to be a PCOS power food is barley. There have been several studies demonstrating barley's effects on lowering blood sugar. I always recommend my clients with PCOS incorporate barley into their rotation as a whole grain that has added benefits. I have a whole chapter on barley in my cookbook. I'm such a big fan of this whole grain. Some people, of course, cannot have gluten. Those who are diagnosed with celiac disease, which is a condition where gluten actually harms the lining of the intestines. And the only treatment for celiac disease is total avoidance of gluten. There is a condition called non-celiac gluten sensitivity where people might experience delayed symptoms after eating gluten, such as brain fog, digestive issues, and fatigue. But it's also hypothesized that these symptoms may also be being caused by those fructans and not the gluten itself. It's worth taking a look at removing gluten if you have autoimmune conditions like Hashimoto's in addition to PCOS. Again, removing gluten is not a magic bullet for Hashimoto's, but it's not, if it's not too hard to implement, there's at least a little research out there suggesting that avoiding gluten might help lower thyroid antibodies as opposed to in PCOS, where there's just nothing from a scientific research perspective. It's very possible that you might find that gluten doesn't work for you and your body, but I always remind people that this has nothing to do with the PCOS itself. It's a separate issue. One of my main problems with the sweeping recommendations that people with PCOS need to avoid gluten is the sheer number of people I've spoken to who it didn't work for. They gave up gluten religiously, um, really stuck with it, and their PCOS symptoms didn't improve. Um, and they really felt like a failure, like maybe they were doing something wrong because they were they were following the diet and nothing was getting better. Um, and that's when they tend to end up in my programs and get results while still including gluten. Also, I just want to mention that it's really hard to follow a gluten-free diet depending on where you live, what you have access to, and your food budget. Eating gluten-free in, say, California is a heck of a lot easier than eat, eating gluten-free in the mid Midwest or the South, not only in restaurants, but also in grocery stores. You know, additionally, gluten-free substitutes can be very expensive, although foods that are naturally gluten-free like fruits, vegetables, whole grains, and legumes can be more budget-friendly options for those of you who do have to be gluten-free. The bottom line with gluten is that you have to decide if gluten works for you or it doesn't. I generally recommend starting with taking out one food at a time uh, for a couple of weeks to see if it makes a difference. That way, you know, as opposed to an elimination diet where you're eliminating a bunch of things at once, um, you're really able to tell which food that you eliminated made the difference. And, you know, you can take it out for two weeks, see how you feel, and then see how you feel when you try to add it back in. I will say that most of the clients I've worked with for whom we have eliminated gluten for a short time 
are usually able to add it back successfully, usually after a lot of work on gut health to get their gut into a better place to be able to handle the fructans in wheat. The bottom line on gluten is that giving it up is not a magic bullet for PCOS, nor does that even have a good hypothesis backing why it might work. Ultimately, though, it's your choice. So if you feel better off gluten, you have access to gluten-free foods that fit your budget and it doesn't affect your social life or your family meals much, then absolutely go for it. I'm not going to stop you from eating gluten. I think one of the common misperceptions when I'm talking about you know, eliminating gluten doesn't work for all people for PCOS is I'm not recommending everyone else go eat, go out and eat gluten, you know, a ton of gluten, three meals a day, but a little gluten doesn't hurt most people, you know, and that doesn't also equal telling everybody else with PCOS that they need to do what you do. You know, if gluten-free works for you, it doesn't mean it's going to work for someone else. All right, next up is dairy. What does the evidence say? Let's start there. There's one small study in PCOS that showed weight loss, improvements in insulin resistance and androgen levels after following a low starch, low dairy diet for eight weeks. What we don't know is were these benefits the result of removing the dairy, lowering the carbs? Uh, who knows? You know, another thing about this study, and it is the only study that even mentions dairy in PCOS, is that it was done in only 24 people with PCOS. So, you know, hardly the basis of sweeping recommendations for a whole group of people. When it comes to dairy in PCOS, I do have one caveat. If you're going to include it, you want to include full fat dairy. Because it's an animal product, dairy does naturally contain hormones. With full fat dairy, the hormones are balanced because estrogen is stored in fat. When we skim that fat off and out of the milk, all that is left behind is the androgens, which are water soluble. And increasing androgens in your diet is usually the last thing you want to increase when it comes to PCOS. Full fat dairy has also been linked to better fertility outcomes in women, not necessarily specifically in PCOS, but people with PCOS were not excluded from that research. Dairy has been linked to acne in people aged 7 to 30 years old, but this association appears to be dose-based and related to excess consumption of dairy. So the more you consume, the more likely you are to experience acne. But a sprinkle of Parmesan cheese on your pasta or queso in your tacos or a dash of cream in your daily coffee is really not likely to make much a difference. And sometimes that can be, you know, all we need to stick with a healthy eating plan for the long term. 
On the other hand, if you're chugging three plus glasses of milk a day and struggling with acne, that's when you might want to try reducing the amount you're consuming or cutting it out for a couple of weeks, seeing if your symptoms get better, and then adding it back and seeing if your symptoms come back. It's very likely you'll find that you have your own personal tolerance for dairy, much like many things. You know, again, anecdotally, many people, PCOS or not, report feeling better after cutting out dairy. But generally, these benefits like less digestive issues like bloating, constipation, or loose stools can be attributed to the lactose or sugar in dairy, which is not only a fermentable, but also a common intolerance, depending on your ethnic background and your age. People from Northern European heritages tend to tolerate lactose better than people with Southern European, Asian, or African backgrounds. We also make less lactase, which is the enzyme that breaks down lactose as we age. So you may also find that your tolerance to dairy changes over time. I've anecdotally heard from a lot of women who haven't been able to tolerate dairy and then suddenly they get pregnant and all of a sudden they're, you know, able to have dairy all the time. There are legitimate dairy allergies as well. Uh, the two proteins in dairy are casein and whey. Casein is a common allergy and one that I have myself actually, which makes me very sad. To be diagnosed with a true dairy allergy, you should see an immunologist who can perform IgE testing for dairy allergy. It's typically done by a skin prick test or a blood test. The reactions to a true dairy allergy are truly allergic in nature, like experiencing hives, for example, uh, which is what happens to me if I have dairy, I immediately break out in hives. And dairy can also be anaphylactic or life-threatening in some people. You may have heard the myth that dairy is inflammatory. Research continually shows that this is simply not true. In studies, dairy shows either no impact on inflammatory markers or it actually has an anti-inflammatory effect. Fermented dairy in particular has been shown to be anti-inflammatory and beneficial. Um, we talk a lot about including probiotics in your diet. One other thing about fermented dairy, like in yogurt and kefir, um, the lactose in fermented dairy is already partially broken down, which can make it easier to digest for most people. In a recent review study of 50 clinical trials, it showed that dairy was actually anti-inflammatory in people with metabolic disorders. So again, it's really, you know, depends on the person. If you suspect that dairy might be a problem for you, take it out for a short time and then add it back. I do also want to caution around removing the whole category if you find that some forms of dairy don't work for you. You know, for example, I'm allergic to casein, which is the protein that makes cheese so ooey, gooey, and delicious. So unfortunately for me, cheese is, is an absolute no-go. But I tolerate butter just fine because butter is just the dairy fat with virtually none of the protein. 
other people who are lactose intolerant might find that they tolerate some lactose-free cheeses. The um, harder the cheese and the more aged it is, the less lactose is in it. So cheddar and Parmesan and other hard cheeses might be fine. Um, and they might even be able to tolerate fermented dairy-like yogurt with no problems. Really, the only way to know for sure is to test out what works and what doesn't work for you and your symptoms. All right, let's talk about eggs next. This is a surprising one, and it's really only been coming up recently, hearing people ask me if they can eat eggs with PCOS and that they've heard eggs are bad for PCOS. The myth that you can't eat eggs comes from one person and one person alone, and he is a guy who has zero medical training or nutrition credentials, but I guess he uh, talks to ghosts that do. I'm not even really sure. The idea that eggs promote growth of cysts is just not grounded in any aspect of science and makes absolutely no sense. Not to mention the fact that the quote unquote cysts in polycystic ovary syndrome are not cysts at all, but immature egg follicles that build up when you don't ovulate them. So yeah, the fact that this guy doesn't even really know the difference between functional ovarian cysts and the, the type of cysts that are seen in polycystic ovary syndrome is kind of a red flag for me. So that's all I'm going to say about eggs. Uh, eat them. They are a great source of protein and a quick breakfast or snack. Yes, they do have some saturated fat, but we need to eat a balance of all kinds of fat to produce hormones and other functions in our body. Yes, they have cholesterol, but we need cholesterol to make hormones. And cholesterol is actually no longer a nutrient of concern. Uh, that's in quotes, according to the dietary guidelines. You know, this is kind of like a oops, are bad. Like we made a mistake in telling people eggs are bad. The cholesterol that we eat has very little impact on our blood cholesterol levels. And furthermore, eggs are one of the only sources of choline in the diet, unless you're eating a lot of liver, which most people are not eating a lot of liver. We need choline for brain health as well as for a healthy pregnancy. So go ahead and eat eggs. There are true egg allergies, again, diagnosed by an immunologist who can do food allergy IgE testing. Hey there. So before we get back to the rest of the episode, I just wanted to pop in real quick and tell you about a new workshop I've put together called PCOS Meal Prep Made Easy. If you're like most folks I hear from, you're confused and overwhelmed by all the conflicting info out there about what to actually eat with PCOS. And you may feel like you don't even know where to start. In this hour-long workshop, I break down what foods you want to include for PCOS and what you might want to consider avoiding or minimizing. And I share my simple three-step formula for planning meals with PCOS. 
The best part is it does not involve spending hours in the kitchen. Yes, you can absolutely incorporate this formula while cooking at home, but what's really great is that you can apply it no matter where you are in a restaurant, getting takeout, at a family meal, or even while traveling. Head over to thehormonedietitian.com forward slash easy PCOS, all one word, to sign up now. Signing up is your first step to finally understanding how to eat to manage PCOS. All right, cool. I'll see you there. Let's get back to the episode. So what about soy? Again, it's a myth that you shouldn't eat soy with PCOS. And I'm not even really sure where this myth stems from, except maybe the fact that soy contains phytoestrogens or plant estrogens. Phytoestrogens are about one two hundredth the strength of endogenous estrogens or the estrogens that we produce in our body. I have found that eating phytoestrogens can help for most people. If estrogen levels are high, phytoestrogens bind to the same estrogen receptors that estrogen does. And what that does is it prevents our own stronger estrogens from binding, which can actually help lower symptoms in people with high estrogen levels. On the other hand, you know, by binding to those receptors, if estrogen is low, it might help with some of the symptoms of low estrogens. Although uh, eating phytoestrogens does not increase estrogen levels in the body. There are a few studies showing benefits of soy in PCOS. Eating soy has been linked to lower insulin levels, lower LDL or bad cholesterol, lower triglycerides, and reduced androgen levels. Soy is also the only plant-based protein that's a significant source of protein without carbs or fat. For example, beans have more carbs than they do protein and nuts have more fat than they do protein. So incorporating soy can be a good way to get more plant-based protein into your diet, which studies have shown is beneficial to health, particularly heart health and cancer prevention. My only caveat when it comes to eating soy is to eat whole soy. And by whole soy, I mean tofu, tempeh, edamame. Uh, Soy milk is also pretty minimally processed, so that can be a good option as well. And it's one of the higher dairy-free milks, higher protein dairy-free milks. What you want to avoid are the soy-based meat imitations that are made with soy isoflavones. Those are highly processed and inflammatory. Additionally, most of the soy grown in the U.S. is GMO. So if you want to avoid that, be sure to choose organic soy when you're buying soy products. This is a much bigger topic for another time. You know, I personally don't think we necessarily need to avoid GMOs, but what I don't like about GMO foods is that they were bred to withstand more pesticide use. So non-organic soy products have higher levels of pesticides in them like glyphosate and others. Again, this is a super complicated topic that I hope to dive into in the near future. 
One more side note, soy can fit into a healthy diet if we're incorporating it in a moderate way. One of the main problems I have with vegan diets and PCOS is having to rely so heavily on soy because remember I said beans are equal amounts, carb and protein, and nuts have more fat than they do protein. So we can find ourselves eating a very carb heavy or very uh, calorie dense diet, um, trying to eat a vegan diet with PCOS, unless we're incorporating soy, which is pretty much pure protein. We really shouldn't be eating any one food three times a day, every day, and soy is no exception. But I do feel comfortable recommending incorporating whole soy into your diet two two to three times a week. Andy, the RD, who is a Canadian dietitian, he has a great article on PCOS and soy and the research there. And I'll drop the link in the show notes so you can check that out. Okay. So what about carbs and sugar? Yes, there are a few studies showing the benefits of a quote unquote low carb diet in PCOS in terms of improving insulin resistance, lowering androgens and resulting in weight loss. But when you look at the definition of low carb, Low carb diets are actually defined as 40% of daily calories coming from carbs. So for example, on a 200 calorie a day diet, that works out to two grams a day of carbs. Each gram of carbs has four calories. 200 grams a day of carbs is by no means what I would consider a low carb diet, but it is much lower than what's typically consumed in the standard American diet. Carb tolerance is very individual, even with PCOS. Some people need more, some people need less. Some people find they need more at different times of the day. It's really individual. Some of the types of people who might find that they need more carbs are typically those who have less insulin resistance. They're close to or at their ideal weight for them and or they're very active. Um, Athletes of any kind especially need carbs. I find in my practice that most people with PCOS do somewhere, you know, they really do best somewhere around the 100 to 150 grams a day of carbs range, but I don't recommend tracking your food. Really aiming to keep grains and starchy vegetables to a quarter of your plate and then not limiting unstarchy veggies or fruits is a good place to start. You might be saying, but wait, aren't you supposed to limit fruit? That one's a hell no for me. Studies consistently show benefits from increased fruit consumption, even in diabetes. I promise you, I have never met a single person who became obese from eating too many bananas. Fruit is full of nutrients and fiber, and it tastes good. If you want to, you know, quote unquote, limit it, then sure, keep your fruit to two to three servings a day. 
Um, the only place I, I have issues with fruit is when we're eating a massive amount of them at once with no or not enough protein added. You know, like those giant acai bowls that are just fruit or a smoothie that doesn't have any protein added. And it's not really about the fruit. It's more about the total carb lo load of that meal. I also don't recommend juice for adults because the fruit has been stripped of its fiber, but whole fruit is delicious, nutritious, and it can help satisfy a sweet craving. So what about added sugar then? That's bad, right? Listen, PCOS is a lifelong condition and it's completely unrealistic to expect you to never eat sugar again. Plus avoiding sugar is just going to make you overeat when your willpower breaks down. So we take a moderate approach there too. The U.S. dietary guidelines recommend that up to 10% of your daily calories can come from added sugar. On a 2000 calorie a day diet, that works out to about 50 grams of added sugar a day. I personally think that's too loose. Plus, we all know how big Agra has influenced the U.S. dietary guidelines and bought the U.S. politicians. Uh, so yeah, again, you know, maybe we can talk about that more in the future. But for now, what I look at instead is the WHO guidelines, uh, which is the World Health Organization. These guidelines are a, a lot more realistic. And they say that less than 5% of your total daily calories should come from added sugars. So on a 2000 calorie a day diet, that works out to 25 grams of added sugar a day, which is a nice amount of wiggle room. You know, it's the reason why I don't sweat the three grams of sugar in my favorite salad dressing or I can incorporate a couple of dark chocolate peanut butter cups after lunch when I'm craving something sweet, or when Mr. Avocado asks if we have ice cream in the house. Uh, he's a big dessert person. I'm not such a big dessert person. But it also can help put in perspective how much is too much. For example, one 12 ounce can of Coca-Cola has 33 grams of added sugar, uh, which is more than a whole day's recommendations. One grande pumpkin spice latte from everyone's favorite coffee shop has 50 grams of added sugar or two days worth of added sugar. And a venti has 63 grams. It just goes up from there. You don't even want to know about a Duncan's culotta. All right, I'll, I'll tell you. Um, one large strawberry culotta has a whopping 110 grams of sugar, which is more than you should eat in four days. So listen, I'm not going to dictate how you spend your sugar budget. You can spend it however you want. But given the chance between a latte and an ice cream, nine times out of 10, I'm going to pick the ice cream or the dessert. The key takeaway with sugar is that you don't have to eliminate sugar from your life altogether. You should be mindful of your total sugar consumption over the course of a day or a week, but there's some wiggle room there. And most of my clients feel extreme relief when I encourage them to include sugar in a healthy, mindful, and balanced way.
Let's talk about the recommendation to avoid white foods. That is just old and outdated advice. What about everybody's diet, darling, cauliflower? That's white, right? Plenty of white foods are nutritious. I know what they're mostly referring to is those high glycemic processed white foods like pasta, bread, and white rice. But I find that avoiding those altogether doesn't work, especially if they're a staple of your cultural diet. You know, white rice is the basis of so many diets across the world. What actually matters more than the food itself is what you pair them with. You know, for example, in my personal opinion, I'm a huge sushi fan and brown rice sushi is just not even worth eating. But, you know, with traditional sushi, white rice is is paired with plenty of protein from the fish and veggies if you're having a maki roll or seaweed salad and the nori has fiber as well. So don't sweat it. You know, you may have to shift some proportions and portion sizes a little bit um, in order to keep those processed carbs to a quarter of your plate. And yes, you should still focus on getting the majority of your carbs from whole grains and starchy vegetables, but you can still eat these things if you want to. All right. Finally, let's talk about caffeine. If you know me, you know, you would have to pry my coffee out of my cold, dead hands. It's the first thing I go to every morning. I think the recommendation to avoid caffeine if you have PCOS comes comes from the fact that many people with PCOS also have adrenal involvement and adrenal imbalances, but not all people with PCOS. Studies have actually shown health benefits of coffee on blood sugar. Uh, It contains powerful antioxidant polyphenols that can help improve gut health. And my personal favorite statistic, that people who drink coffee are less likely to commit suicide. I would also argue that I'm less likely to also commit homicide as well, Um, but you know, we don't need to go there. So... Should you avoid coffee? Again, it comes down to dose here. A reasonably sized coffee a day for most people is not a problem. If your cortisol and your DHEA are jacked, we might want to work on lowering your overall stress levels. Personally, cutting coffee out of my life would cause undue stress, especially during the pandemic. I feel like, you know, our sources of joy have just dwindled and coffee really sparks joy for me. I love the flavor. I just, it makes me happy. I'm not willing to give that up. But again, it's not as black and white as just give it up. You might not have to. I do caution folks to stop consuming caffeine by noon so as not to disturb sleep. But how sensitive people are to caffeine is highly individual. Um, So really go by how you feel with this one. Um, But again, there's no reason to cut it out just because you have PCOS. Okay, so let's talk about foods or quote unquote foods that I do recommend minimizing or eliminating with PCOS. First off, artificial anything. Artificial colors have been shown to have negative impacts on mood. 
artificial sweeteners have negative impacts on the gut microbiome, which is already disturbed with PCOS. And, you know, furthermore, studies consistently show no benefit of artificial sweeteners, either on weight or diabetes. So why even bother? Artificial flavors and artificial chemicals just like why add these? Um, many of these can have endocrine disrupting effects and other negative effects on health. We just don't need them and they're not actually food. The next food that I recommend minimizing is processed vegetable oils. I'm talking about the industrial oils typically used in fast frying foods in restaurants like peanut, soy, cottonseed, canola. They are also found in processed foods you buy at the grocery store, including products you think might be healthy. These are highly processed and highly inflammatory oils. I recommend sticking with olive oil and avocado oil instead as your primary sources of fat and oil in your diet. Trans fats. It's actually pretty hard to find these in foods anymore. These were laboratory created fats that were mostly found in margarine. They are still found in some processed baked goods. If you look at the ingredients list, you're looking for anything that says partially hydrogenated, and that's what you want to avoid. The most recent research, you know, back when we were eating margarine and swapping it for butter because it was supposedly better for heart health. And it turned out to be far worse for heart health. You know, the research shows that these trans fats do far more harm when it comes to heart health than saturated fats do. And finally, alcohol, you know, which isn't a food, it's a beverage. Uh, this one isn't an of and avoid food, but most people don't realize they're having more than they should food. The recommendation for women is one drink max a day. Um, and one serving of alcohol is much less than you think it is. You know, I think most people aren't sticking with the recommended serving sizes. And no, you can't save up that one drink a day and have all seven on a Friday night. Better health is actually seen with less. You know, I'd say one or two drinks a week is realistic depending on your goals, maybe less than that if you're actively trying to conceive. The reason for that is alcohol does have negative effects on health, which we know. Alcohol affects blood sugar, the process of detoxing alcohol from your body ties your liver up doing that and only that until the alcohol is gone. And I don't know if you know this, but your liver has so many important jobs in your body, including you know, balancing blood sugar and detoxifying or metabolizing hormones. Alcohol is such a toxin in your body that your liver literally stops doing all of those other jobs just to deal with it. So yeah, again, you know, you kind of have to go off your situation. If your hormones are a wreck, it might not make sense to take your liver away from the job of metabolizing them multiple times a week, if not daily. 
you know, I typically recommend, you know, when you do consume alcohol, um, thinking of it as a carb. So you do want to be mindful with what else is on your plate, you know, really balance it with protein and veggies. Alcohol can lower your inhibitions as well. So you may end up eating things after drinking that you didn't plan to or want to. And that also may not align with your long-term goals. Alcohol can displace more nutritious foods in your diet and it has calories. Did you know that there's actually a condition called drunkorexia where people save up their calories for the day so that they can use them on alcohol? Zero out of 10, do not recommend that strategy. If you must drink, go for drinks with no added sugars or juice. Um, a red wine or a vodka and soda water is going to be, you know, cause less damage here than some of the others. So key takeaways from this episode, what to eat and what to avoid with PCOS are not so black and white and differ from person to person. What works for one might not work for another and vice versa. There's no evidence that avoiding any food food is necessary or beneficial for PCOS, but you might want to consider minimizing the fake stuff. And even then you've got some wiggle room and may still be able to have certain things on occasion. The most important thing is to find a diet that works for you for the long term because you're going to be in it for the long haul. In my six-week self-study course, the PCOS Root Cause Roadmap, which is a course where I go into great detail on the ins and outs of what to eat and what to avoid with PCOS and why, go to thehormonedietitian.com forward slash PCOS dash course to learn more. Thank you so much for joining me for this week's episode of Hormonally Yours with the Hormone Dietitian. See you next time. That's it for this week. Thank you for listening to this episode of Hormonally Yours with the Hormone Dietitian. If you enjoyed this episode, I'd really appreciate it if you could open up the podcast app you're probably using to listen to this episode right now and leave a quick rating or review. Your reviews help this podcast get seen by more women who could benefit from the information I share here. Stay tuned for our next episode. And in the meantime, stay balanced. Stay balanced.